What is up, fellow thermonuclear AFers? I am Dan Pavalli coming at you with another episode of the Hardware Knocks Podcast. Before we get started, very quickly, please remember to subscribe to us wherever you consume us. If you're on YouTube, hit the sub button, like, comment, help the algorithm love us back. Subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, wherever you get your podcast. Cross sub on both YouTube and then also a podcast player. If you've done both those things, please join our Discord. The link to that is in the YouTube and podcast description. We have a great time around there. Follow us on all the socials. The links and handles are in the podcast and YouTube descriptions. And tell people about us. Retweet our promos on Twitter. Um, just help us get the word out there that this podcast is um, not insufferable at all. It's least the least amount of insufferable it needs to be for a general NBA podcast. And I, I appreciate the com- community continuing to build or grow. Uh, and I heart every single one of you very quickly too. I'm, I probably won't put this on po- the pod, the actual YouTube podcast, but I will put it in the, the actual audio podcast um, because I do feel a loyalty to the listeners that have stuck with me all these years. And it's not a, it's not a crisis of self or anything, but I am currently in the process of moving. I know I'm very fortunate to do so, but there's a lot of work being done to the house that I just purchased because we're morons and bought a house in this market. Again, we were lucky enough to be able to do it. So uh, my schedule is going to be just more chaotic. I will still try and put out between four and six episodes a week, which is what I've been doing. The quality of content will be uh, as good as it has been, which is to say it will completely suck. Um, but if the schedules, sometimes maybe there might be leaner weeks. That is why. The other thing is, with the interest of full transparency, is like I said, Grant and I, we do this as more of a passion project. The ad revenue as of right now has just been slashed. Uh, and so we're going to have to put our priorities where, um, like, you know, the money sort of lies there. Um, and I'm not going like the podcast is always going to be free. That's not what I'm getting at. This isn't a preamble to anything along those lines, but I did want to explain just in case the content is down or for also our discord members, I'm watching the conversations. I'll try and participate as much as possible, but I'm maybe asking for some, uh, you know, if I don't get back to you right away or if I'm not as active over the next month or so, just wanted to explain to you the reason why, like I said, I will still aim to put out four to six episodes a week, even if the discord thing is down. Um, if my activity is down, um, I will still be watching on discord. Uh, so rest assured there. Um, but I wanted to give, I feel like I've been less active in there over the past five days and I just felt obligated to give an explanation there. And like I said, if it, the podcast does get leaner, I think we can always guarantee you at least two episodes a week, which is what we used to do. And then I upped it to four to six because, um, I, I enjoy this. It also forces me to cover the league as much as possible. And I, I love interacting with our listeners. And that's a, really the only driving force behind this is that there's people who are listening. I don't understand why all the time, but they're so fun um, to talk to in the DMs and Discord. And so while I'm at the moment overwhelmed um, with stuff to do, I, you know, I have not been ready to forfeit that type of just relationship with our listeners and people to talk hoops with. But again, just if it does get leaner, there will still be two podcasts a week because uh, we do do things, you know, my, both Grant and I are full-time at Bleacher Report. Um, everyone knows that I do some other consulting on the side and like, I'm going to have to put the priority as to what uh, makes the most financial sense here. Again, the quality of the podcast will still suck. So it won't suck any less, but I wanted to give um, the listeners to, you know, audio wise, like you guys have stuck with us and the discord members specifically just wanted to give that little spiel there. Um, let's move on to, just some trade news murmurings. There were a lot of injuries over the uh, in the NBA over the weekend. I couldn't keep track of it while I was in the process of doing things to my house. Um, going back through it, I'm just like exhausted from the sheer amount of injuries. A lot of them we're going to talk about, though, at least some of the most noteworthy ones in our Eastern Conference questions pod, which is coming at you Wednesday and Friday of this week. So the day before and then the day after Thanksgiving, I'm not going to touch upon them here. 
Um, and there was also, you know, if we need to blow through it, like Russell Westbrook's uh, x-ray came back negative on his. Um, I think even Marcus Smart might have returned the lineup on Monday. Did not catch that that Celtics game, so I might have been off on the news there. But we'll get into some of those injuries. If you have specific questions about one, you could DM me or you can ask a question on Discord and we will hit it in kind. I wanted to focus on some. There was like, you know, Mark Stein and, Sh- and Shams had reported some stuff over the weekend. I think I saw some fan bases sort of lusting after a Zach Levine trade um, when he was benched in the fourth quarter by head coach Billy Donovan. Uh, Zach Levine said there was no ill feelings between him and Bulls coach uh, Donovan. That came from Darnell Mayberry of The Athletic. Uh, Levine was upset, though, when he was benched. I think it was whether they playing the Magic. He was 1 of 14 from the floor. He said, this is per Mayberry, me and Billy talk all the time. It's a tough decision. Obviously, I'm a competitive guy. I want to play. I just told him I feel like I've earned the right to go out there and try to play through a bad game. His decision was to try to do the best thing for the team, which I respect. If we won, obviously, I would have been ecstatic. We lost. I wasn't. I had a terrible game. Uh, just noteworthy, Levine battling knee stuff, shooting 46.2% on twos this year, uh, which would be the lowest of his career since his rookie season. And he's getting to the line at a career-low clip, clip still. Uh, he's been shooting 23.5% from three over his past four games as well. Just something to monitor because he's still so young, but he, he's only 27, and he's going to turn 28. It'll be in March, um, but he's coming off another knee problem. And like his performance is like waxed and waned and ebbed and flowed more than normal this season. You're in the first year of a five year deal. Um, the the Bulls, who were as I before I started recording this, were pummeling the Celtics. Um, they're sort of just hovering on the the submiddle of the Eastern Conference, and they just have a lot of, I think, inward questions to kind of ask themselves at this point. Uh, they're you know being 11th in the East. That's not where you want to stay. You're still only six games outside of first place. If we're going to frame it that way. Uh, but this is just this is just a team to watch because it just feels like there's something off there that they're them in Miami. I just can't, you know, we can get into the Sixers with their injuries and we're going to talk about all these teams again more more in depth uh, shortly, Grant and I. But the Heat and Bulls just give me like weird vibes that I can't wrap my head around. And I'm, I might be a little bit more concerned with Miami because my expectations were higher. But um, just the Zach Levine rough stretch that he's currently having. Uh, and just like looking at digging into some of the, the sort of the offensive splits for him. I do think it's worth monitoring there. Not to think that I, not to say that I think he is going to um, wind up on the trade block this year, uh, but it's just, it's just something feels off in Chicago. That's, that's where I'm at with this. Uh, so we had trade murmurings basically focused on the, the Hawks and the jazz or John Collins centric Mark Stein had said, uh, John Collins was nearly dealt to the Kings over the offseason. And then sources also told Stein that momentum is building on all sides for Collins to be traded during this season and that his name will be um, at the fore of the, the February trade deadline rumor mill. That is not really shocking at this point. Uh, he has been marginalized in Atlanta's offense. When you look at last year, Specifically, John Collins had 33.3 front court touches per 36 minutes and a 20.5 usage rate. Uh, this season, he's down to 22.6 front court touches per 36 minutes, and his usage rate is around 16. You add another ball dominant guy, DeJounte Murray, to an offense that already had Trey Young, and then you also sort of moved Collins away from being your primary screener with the addition of Clint Capella in the first place a few seasons ago. Um, his counting stats, his advanced stats, like anything that's prided on volume is going to be diminished i think it's probably he would be better off in a different situation i don't know if you're atlanta though what are you looking to get for him stein mentions that they could be in the jay crowder running and we'll mention the phoenix in a, in a second but you're not you're atlanta you're trying to win now are you trading you're not trading john collins for picks and prospects 
uh, Steinor that the Jazz have interest in John Collins, that would be super interesting. They're already just trying to play five out. I don't know what that package looks like. They have extra first-round picks for days. They have salary that they could send in and out. But if you're Atlanta, who are you really looking for here? Is this like a, you want Malik Beasley and picks? Or like is Kelly Olynyk involved in that? I'm assuming maybe people think that they would want Larry Marketing. Um, I'm assuming the Jazz want to keep Larry Marketing. The Jazz are still in first in the West. And if they're going to go, imagine the Jazz getting John Collins and just making the win now move after everyone thought they were at the front of the line for Victor Wembanyama this year. Um, that would just be the, the storyline's already incredible because they're first in the, the West. Um, that would just be astounding to me. And we're talking about their offense has been potent as hell already. I don't look I, more shooting. And I, I do wonder if like, can you feed him enough in this offense to where his touches would be appreciably higher? I think you could get around it. I just look at like, you're not dealing with anyone who is heliocentric on this team between Colin Sexton and Jordan Clarkson and Mike Conley and, and Larry market. And like, you're not, there's no one who has to cannibalize all these offensive possessions. I don't know that I want to see them throw it to John Collins in the post and let him work there, but you could certainly carve out more possessions with him as a screener. Now, would I advocate for the jazz to do it? It just depends on cost because I view Collins and this is a running joke here as infinitely scalable and can fit anywhere on offense. And even like on Atlanta, he could fit with what he's doing now. It's just not going to be this glitzy role. There's not room for it. It feels like he's buried too much of the time. Um, it's just like you're at the point in the jazz rebuild where it does still feel a little bit too early, but if the cost has dropped so much because they just want to get rid of the three years and 78.5 million left on his deal or something, because they know they have the Hunter extension kicking in. They they're paying Clint Capella. They're thinking about Deshante Murray's next deal. They're paying Trey young. That's interesting. Maybe they consider like Onyeko Kongu is someone who could play with Clint Capella eventually, or he's their big guy of the future. And they don't even, they're not that married to Capella. I honestly don't know. Uh, Collins was supposed to be dealt over the summer to the Kings would have been weird. They, like the way they're playing now, I guess what would they have the top offense in the league, but I'm assuming Barnes would have been involved. And I, I do think their defense would suffer quite a bit. If you go from Barnes and Murray and Sabonis to Collins, Sabonis and Murray, but the Kings clearly had a vision and that was just to assemble um, a crap ton of shooting and look, it's working. They have the second best offense in the league right now. So that would have been fascinating. I would bet against them becoming involved again, even though Harrison Barnes is probably been a little bit better um, or has been a little bit better recently underachieved overall in the season. I would, think that the Kings aren't trying to really rock the boat here though. And they already went ahead and made the deal for Kevin Herter. And I don't know if it was supposed to be part of a larger context here, like what both of those guys have wound up in Sacramento. I'm very curious to see what the deal would have looked like there, but I'm assuming it would have been like Harrison Barnes and Collins sort of as the, the meat and potatoes of that deal. Um, Shams did mention that the Suns might be in on uh, John Collins, but that they didn't want the three years and $78.5 million left on his deal. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. If they don't want that, then they don't want John Collins. I don't think that deal is egregious. Again, his role has changed a lot. It's diminished in Atlanta a lot. That is not obscene money by, by any measure for someone as talented offensively as John Collins. Um, do I think that he would be a great fit for Phoenix? I'd rather see them consolidate into someone who's just more of a ball handler, whether they're on the wings or the guard position at this point. Um, John Gambadoro um, came out pretty forcefully and, uh, did say that the Suns would not be interested in in John Collins. So um, I would bet against that, like having been a thing, or if it was, it's probably the fact that it got out at all means that it's dead in the first place. Uh, but 
this sort of moves on to the other name that's sort of bending about the trade room as much. Jay Crowder, Stein wrote, there was a good bit of buzz that Phoenix was finally making progress on a Crowder deal, one that would likely land him with one of his most ardent suitors, which was Milwaukee. Yet no trade materialized, and by week's end, chatter had begun to resurface that Atlanta remains a potential Crowder destination and should not be discounted. Um, I guess it's like sort of a third-party team there. I'm just curious as to the framework of a Milwaukee deal. If Grayson Allen's involved, like the Suns, there's, there has to be a third and fourth team there. The Suns don't need Grayson Allen. Was Milwaukee trading a distant first-round pick? And I believe they can trade a 2029 first right now. So like I wouldn't give that up for Jay Crowder, but if they were willing to, is that enough, you know, that plus Allen to get Jay Crowder? Would you do that for your Phoenix just to, you know, arm yourself with the, the additional asset, which gets into a really interesting discussion about the Suns and how urgent, Lee, should they be looking to move Jay Crowder? Because on the one hand, you're looking at CP3 out, right heel injury still, and there's something on that uh, in a moment that I found interesting too, I threw in here. Cam Johnson out, recovering from that meniscus injury. Um, DeAndre Ayton's looked kind of better over the past few games. Mikael Bridges on fire, getting good minutes from Cameron Payne. But like, how much do you mean on the depth that you have now? It still feels like you could use, for when you're at full strength, someone who is by far and away your sixth best player. And if you think that's Cameron Payne, all right, like then then roll forward and maybe see if you can let this uh, march closer to the trade deadline and see what materializes. The name I've kept coming back to, and it's not an original name, but like Eric Gordon seems to make so much sense for this team. I also wonder, can you get away with not giving a first-round pick for him? If you're asking Houston to take on money beyond this season, um, you probably can't, but they do have KJ Martin floating around in there in Houston, and they have like a superfluous number of sort of like forward types at this point. Um, Jay Sean Tate will eventually come back. Usman Garuba has been getting minutes. They have Jabari Smith Jr., um, who's playing uh, you know, alongside a big almost all the time. Uh, they have Tari, Tari Eason, who, yeah, he's 6'8". He can play the three, but he can also play the four. Would you be willing to move on for Martin, Gordon, and a, like you get a first, and then I would say Crowder and Shamit from Phoenix? Or I guess you could look at it as maybe if you do want all expiring money here, um, Dario Sarich is in the last year of his deal. So you go Sarich, Crowder for Gordon and Martin. Are you giving up? Like, well, I guess you could do those two salaries straight up for Gordon, uh, Sarich and Crowder for Gordon. And then if you're Houston, are you trying to get like a pick for Crowder elsewhere? And so maybe you get Gordon without costing yourself first round pick, but maybe if you're Phoenix, you can do 2023 and um, Sarich and Crowder for Gordon and Martin. And I don't I don't hate that deal for them. I think KJ Martin would bring a nice element of rim pressure to that team. Three-point shooting can be iffy if he's not like ultra wide open and firing off the catch. Um, but I think that's someone that they could make work on that roster and is a very versatile defender. And I think he gives you more offense than a Josh Akogi and sometimes even more than a Tory Craig. Um, sometimes. So like you don't necessarily have to cater towards one side of the ball as much with him. But what I like about Eric Gordon is to me, Yes, you have CP3, you have Devin Booker. You can play Gordon at the three in those situations. Would you be reluctant to do so in the playoffs? Maybe. You're going to be much more likely to play him, though, than Payne with Booker and Paul. And so if Mikael Bridges can keep this up, especially his quick decision-making, maybe you feel more confident in him being that third ball handler in certain lineups. Or maybe you think it's Cam Johnson, because, hey, if Cam Johnson's not, if it's Mikael Bridges and Aiton with Gordon and CP3 and Booker, it's because you sat Cam Johnson. Is Gordon going to be better than Cam Johnson in certain matchups? I honestly don't know. That's also kind of why, though, it might make more sense to um, like acquire a guard because if you know that you're locked in to like all of those five guys in your closing lineup, that sort of the next thing that you would need off the bench is just that third ball handler. It's easier to get that in the guard 
most of the time. And this brings me to my point about CP3. Monty Williams had this quote over the weekend. Um, came from Gerald Borgett, and it was he's Monty Williams said this. Chris Paul's not ready to play the way he feels he needs to be. Uh, we, we feel he's still not there yet. Chris wants to be out there. You may see him shooting, but there's a ton more to it than just getting up shots. There are other things and other check marks that we have to get past. When I see him shooting, I get excited, but we still have to get him to a certain place. That, sorry, was via AZ Central. This one was via um, Gerald Borgett. Monty Williams on Chris Paul's nagging, sore right heel. I can't really speak to that. It's probably taking a bit longer than people thought it would because we haven't heard, we haven't shared like what it is and it's just how we operate. I find that hysterical that he's just sort of admitting, oh, we don't fucking tell you guys about injuries. It's like the the, the Knicks should sort of come out and do that. So I'm just like, we're not going to be transparent at all. So fuck that. Um, but like, if this is more serious than we were led to believe or the Suns even thought, you need like that. I would think that extra guard juice and the fact that Eric Gordon is someone who could come in and then play alongside CP three um, or Booker or both at the same time. Like, I think he can hold up defensively. He's stout enough, like just kind of like strong enough to hold up as a three in certain lineups. Um, I think it's an ideal acquisition. And I also think it's ideal, not because his money comes off the books unless you win a title this year, but the, the, the opportunity cost of getting him shouldn't be more than this year's first round pick. And if you're the Suns, you have to plan around the next star becoming available, being on Kevin Durant's wish list um, if and when he decides he wants another trade from Brooklyn. And so if it only costs you the 2023 first, you can still build workable trade packages um, where you're not going to be encumbered. We're talk- I'm talking this season too. Like getting a first in 2025, uh, like that's like that could be sort of almost standard fare now when you're looking at like that. If you're expecting that's the first round pick is the Nets or another team to glean in a superstar trade. That's not egregious. And so if you're not giving up more than your 2023 first round pick or even your 2023 first round pick, or maybe you're able to structure it. So you're not going to need this, but it's protected for X this year. And then it turns into two seconds. Like there's no rollover. So you're unencumbering yourself even more in future trades. That would seem to make a lot of sense. There are other names that could be out there. Maybe they're on a smaller scale. Maybe Phoenix believes that they can sort of navigate this regular season stretch because they're a machine and reevaluate at the trade deadline. I'm not against that either. Um, I think a move needs to be made at some point, though, and I've really liked Eric Gordon for this team for a while. I don't know that I would give up a first-round pick alone on its face for a half-season of Eric Gordon, but if you throw K.J. Martin in there, I do think things would start to get uh, a little more interesting there. And I've been through other Phoenix Suns trade targets, uh, so you can go check out. That was a segment on both the podcast and YouTube, so you can look for it. I will say just a name that I would watch if he's healthy, which I don't know how healthy he was going to be. I thought Cody Martin would be a really good fit in Charlotte, and he's out right now, so he's not a really good fit. But that would just be, again, another name where it's not bankrupting you of your assets. You're still keeping yourself flexible and asset-rich for future deals. But the Jay Crowder stuff beyond, I really want to know what the framework of that Milwaukee trade uh, reportedly was. Atlanta for Crowder, I want to know what they're giving up. Like, Are they trading another pick? There are only a select few picks that they can trade after giving up DeJounte Murray. Um, are they giving up Jalen Johnson in that deal? And is that a team that, like, is he someone who intrigues Phoenix there? And there needs to be other money involved on top of that, too. So um, I, I'm I'm still very curious to see where Jay Crowder ends up. And I guess the Suns have played well enough to where there doesn't need to be urgency. I guess I'm a little bit surprised that there's not more urgency, though. Um but also, this could just be a matter, not to you know use the butt word like 80 times, of just letting the trade market develop closer to December 15th. We're almost we're almost there, folks. It's like f- less than four weeks away. So that might be what teams are, or what the Suns are sort of thinking. I don't know. And also, Jay Crowder's value is, I guess it's not getting any lower. It's also not getting any higher. Like, it's kind of just bottomed out because he's not 
with the team. And so uh, I'm still very intrigued to see where he ends up. And I would be very curious to know the framework of that reported Milwaukee deal. Uh, the Knicks, surprise, surprise, were involved in some uh, trade rumors. Uh, they apparently are, this is per Michael's uh, Scoto of uh, Hoops Hype. Uh, they're reluctant to part with a first round pick to move off Evan Fournier's contract. He's one guaranteed season after this one. And then the fourth year of his contract's a team option. Uh, he's basically fallen out of the Knicks rotation. And so you're not boosting his trade value by doing that. And he's owed almost 19 million next year. Uh, also, this is Perskoto. It's believed that Emmanuel quickly and Derek Rose um, are available as well as miles McBride because of how crowded the backcourt is in New York. Uh, that is, I guess, somewhat interesting. I would, if you're moving Derek Rose is fine. He even said he doesn't know what his place on this team is maybe there are teams that could actually use him too if they think they're going to be able to get 15 to 20 minutes uh, reliably out of him per game for the rest of the season. Uh, and his contract, it's he only had two guaranteed years. So this is, you know, he's functionally an expiring contract. Quickly is interesting. Offense has been all over the place. Defensive effort has been really good this year. Um, your backcourt rotation is not so stuffed that it's like, hey, let's get rid of Quickly and Rose and McBride. And so I'm thinking it's move one of these guys and Rose would make the most sense there. Um, I wonder if the Knicks would use quickly if it meant getting off of Fournier's contract. That feels a little bit just like selling too low on a manual quickly there. But I could see a point given how well Jalen Brunson has played. And also, our, I don't know if this is trying to gear more of the teams toward, toward Julius Randle, but it also could help to give R.J. Barrett some more run as the primary ball handler with more shooters around him. R.J. Barrett plus bench lineups. R.J. Barrett plus lineups independent of Julius Randle is basically what I'm getting at. So maybe that would be the logic behind trading. Um, Derek Rose and Emmanuel quickly and you know, like Miles McBride. I'm just, we know the Knicks have designs on bigger fish than just like sort of this trade where they're clearing out a rotation spot, unless their season just sort of completely takes a nosedive and they decide like, Oh, we're going to rebuild quickly. name is just, it feels like being undervalued by New York or that quickly is the one that might want out of New York. because He's going to be extension eligible just like Obi after the season. And his role has been, probably more steadier than ever this year, but not understanding where you stand to the relative to the rest of the organization. That has to get frustrating. There have been nights where what was the game? It was like a week or two ago at this point where like you just Tibbs decides like, no, like yeah, Derek Rose is our guy to come off the bench first. So it's just um, the Knicks are really tough to read with what they would be doing on the trade market. I, I just don't to me, maybe Quickly's reputation has been inflated a little bit by playing in New York, but I do think he's more than just this, afterthought he's been a better defender i think than a lot of people realize and if you give him like more space to operate i think that he ends up being not a floor general but that we see his offensive value ascend and then also sort of um level off or or be more steady more reliable than it has been in new york going to dive into i already did check out the video of the biggest disappointment from every nba team an article published by my coworker zach Buck buckley over at bleach report he did the inverse of that. Every team's biggest surprise for the start of this season. Let's go through those. Trying to do this very quickly and see what, again, live reaction. Haven't seen this yet and just see what he came up with, what we agree, what we disagree with. And let's just generally go off. Okay. We are on to the Atlanta Hawks winning with defense. I would say that that's probably a, a fair surprise as well. I think when you look at the roster, you might expect them to skew towards offense. They've only been 16th in points scored per possession, though. A lot of that has been just really bad shooting. Don't get to the foul line. Um, they're eighth in defense. Meanwhile, there might be a little bit of shooting luck caked in. This is a team that doesn't force turnovers, but also fouls a lot. 
but still, yeah, count me. Look, they have their point differentials, like only plus 0.7 per 100 possessions, but top eight. I thought their offense still would have performed their defense, is my point, even after the Kevin Herter trading him and then acquiring DeJounte Murray. Boston Celtics, Sam Hauser's ascension from afterthought to asset. If you ask people in Boston, they are not surprised by this, but he is just a, a caps lock, bold text, italic shooter, and he's got real motion to him as well. So um, definitely their most, I guess, performer that you would have not definitely predicted to stand out that did. Brooklyn Nets, Edmund Sumner. Uh, the difference maker, yeah. Look, he's had some pretty rough games where I thought he was dribbling too much, but this guy is comfortable getting out in transition, putting the ball in his hand, attacking in the half court. I'm not sure that you would have th- thought he needed to be such a critical part of the Nets rotation this year either. Uh, some injuries definitely opened the door for that, but he's been really good and just a high-energy player for them. Can be moved around a lot on the defensive end as well. The Charlotte Hornets, Dennis Smith Jr. making good things happen, yeah. It's like the defense. Dennis Smith Jr. last time I checked was like in the top five or seven of deflections per game. He's been setting up the offense really well. Um, This is by far not just the biggest surprise in the Hornets, but it's, you know, the one of the he's one of the biggest surprise in the NBA. He said that he was going to um, consider an NFL career just a just a few months before. Um, So just everything better finishing at the rim for him and also uh, lowering his turnover rate. The Chicago Bulls, Goran Dragic got his groove back. It's almost like the Mavs wanting to sign him and play every third day was one of the dumbest things that you heard over the offseason because that's, in fact, what it was. It's uncomfortable how much the Bulls have needed Goran Dragic this year, but it's also just like giving him a steadying uh, as a steadying presence, someone who's been able to do things to the ball in his hand but also play well off others a little bit. Uh, it feels like Gordon. Goran Dragic, excuse me, is an impact player once more after sort of the past two years of hovering between. And then certainly last year when he just doesn't even really play, um, is buried in Toronto um, for, for most of the season. Um, and, uh, so just like never reports there, I guess, or did he report? I can't remember, but I'm shocked at how well he's playing, but I'm still equally shocked that the Mavs wanted to sign him only to play like five minutes a game or every third day. Just an age 36 year old um, who's really putting together some nice efficiency and like sub 20 minutes a night, but that's fine. Cleveland Cavaliers, Dean Wade making a leap. This is this is still surprising. I think he's emerged as just like the definitive, yeah, we need to, he would have to close when he's healthy. He's going to close at the three for us, and that's how it should be. I thought maybe Isaac Okoro, who's been a disaster on offense, and then maybe even Jetty Osmond or Karis LeVert would work their way into that conversation, or we'd be, let's say this, we're clamoring for the Cavs to make a trade more urgently than we have. Um, they've had some just iffy moments of late, but this guy is 25 and he's just sort of everywhere he needs to be on defense, knocking down his threes. Dallas Mavericks, Spencer Dewey doesn't miss from distance. Their biggest surprise. Yeah, I wrote off, not didn't write off, but I wrote off Spencer Dewey shooting as just sort of this late season anomaly with the Mavericks. He's tantalized with efficient outside shooting in the past, only to see it regress. He's kept it up this year. Uh, this is just like, you know, someone who's a career 32.2% shooter. And now he's at 45.9% per Buckley. That is wild. Will he keep it up? We'll have to see the Mavericks certainly need him to, because they don't have a ton of other options to um, just reliably score. Let alone, forget about dribbling, even though he's one of the two most important ball handlers on the roster. Um, they just don't have a ton of people who can consistently stretch the floor at the moment. Like we've seen Maxi Kleba go through some rough stretches, ditto for Reggie Bullock and also Tim Hardaway, Hardaway jr. As well. So he's been hyper important. Definitely out for my expectation. Denver Nuggets, Bones Highlands outside the arc touch. I'm going to disagree here. 
uh, he was such a good shooter last season, like off the dribble um, as a spot up guy. There was just some really good live dribble passing from him as well. So, and I've actually been disappointed in some of the decisions he's made inside the arc this year. And he's been, I feel like almost worse defensively, or maybe I'm just more keyed in onto his flaws. I would have to say just like Christian Brown playing a role on this team would be most surprising for me, or maybe even the nuggets being so bad protecting the basket this year just because it's not Nicole Jokic's fault, but they're allowing over 70%, over 70% conversion rate at the rim. Yes. Is Jokic responsible for that because you have to bring him up so high um, for him to work defensively? Yes. But I thought they just had enough talent behind him to where that wasn't going to be as huge of an issue. So Bowen's been great, but I'm not really surprised. I mean, whatever number, it's with Michael Porter Jr. Okay. He was shooting at a historic clip from three for a while. That doesn't surprise me. Detroit Pistons, the rookies readiness. Yeah. I think that's fair. Uh, Jalen Duran specifically, whatever you thought of Jay Ivey, we're going to get to see more run with him independent of Cade. Now that Cade's dealing with that shin injury, but I've been really impressed with D- Jalen Duran. Just looks ready to sort of make an impact, changing shots around the basket and just looks like he is a, um, going to be like a dominant finisher um, when he gets going downhill and if teammates could find him. So I have been from what I've seen of Jalen Duran, just absolutely blown away. And it's not, it doesn't look like somebody's just sort of, capitalizing on his physical tools, but that there's actual feel there was Jaden Ivy. I still just want to see how him and Kate are going to work out long-term, but I think he's been really good. When you look at him, I see people compare him to John Morant. I see the vision sometimes with him as a passer and some of the things he does after he leaves his feet. So I get it. That was a good one, Buck. Golden State Warriors, Stephen Curry posting several career marks. I would probably say the, well, so we have to, it's positive surprises, which why Denver Nuggets rim protection wouldn't have worked. The Christian Brown role would still have been it for me. Uh, that kind of has to be Golden State. I would say Anthony Lamb being like, you know, the seventh most important player in their rotation to date this season was probably a surprise, but he's been dominant. Uh, like it's, he's going to turn 35 by the end of this year. It's his age 34 campaign. And he's just absolutely annihilating defenses. And the Warriors are killing opponents when he's on the floor. Surprise, surprise. They're getting trucked when he's off. Uh, he belongs in the MVP discussion to be this good at age 34. I think that's even by his standards. It's been surprising. Houston Rockets, the offensive output of defensive specialists. Tari Eason, yeah, for sure. Um, he's giving you three point shooting and then some, uh, like some really just hit some like really tough layups and, and nice runners. He's been great. Usman Gruba shooting 87 plus percent from three, a whopping seven of eight, making some really nice passes. We've seen him put the ball on the floor, seems to be processing things at a higher speed. So I think you could absolutely go this route for them. That was a fantastic pick, Buckley. The, yeah, this was a great one. Indiana Pacers, elite offense. Yeah. I just think you looked at the roster and thought they were more on the inexperienced side that it was, oh, okay, this team was just naturally going to be bad. And instead they're, excuse me, nine and six. And they have the ninth best offense pumping in 114.7 points per 100 possessions. Um, They're really good offensive rebounding team. They do turn the ball over a lot. They get to the line a good amount too. They also, they're out in transition a bunch. I believe they are out in transition the second most of any team in the league. So they play pretty fast. They're seventh in average offensive possession time. I know that because I just written something about it. Uh, yeah, I didn't see this coming. You could, I thought Halbert was going to be good, but Benedict Matherin averaging over 19 points a game on 60 plus true shooting. He's just been absolutely uh, great. Like with the ball in his hands, without the ball in his hands. So Yeah. Uh, that's definitely been their biggest surprise. Maybe sort of some of the stuff Miles Turner's did, but he's only been healthy a, sh- a short time. The Clippers, John Wall looks like John Wall. Sure. I think, yeah, but he's been like one of the worst shooters in the league this year from mid-range and um, three-point range. Maybe that's to be expected. The on-ball speed is still intact, though, so I think that's fair. And look, let's let's be honest. We're kind of hard up for 
good surprises in Clippers land this year. Their, their performance has normalized recently and their defense has been dominant. And that might be the other thing that I know that they're built to defend, but like they are second in points allowed per possession and they don't force turnovers. Um, they don't foul. I guess you would expect that. They're not like super hyper aggressive. They're just blanketing. And they do have a lot of you know old and slower wings or interchangeable guys in the front court, but it's just, it's working for them. And so I would say second in defense, given how much time, uh, Kawhi Leonard is myths, and then also given how reliant they are on John Wall, Reggie Jackson, that's been a bigger surprise to me. The Lakers, Lonnie Walker the fourth, making good on his potential. Is it that? Is it Austin Reeves? Is it Russ kind of looking at home off the bench? I think it could be any of these things. Lonnie Walker the fourth is a good one, though. I will say, I wrote about this. I was flabbergasted at how well he's fit in to the larger context of the offense, where it's like, yeah, he can do his on-ball stuff, but he's been moving really well without the ball, too. And I just viewed him as someone who wouldn't be able to do that, especially within the confined spaces of the Lakers um, offense. Memphis Grizzlies, Desmond's Bain shot creation. I think this is the answer because we know how good Desmond Bain was from last year, but now he's taking even more of his baskets are going unassisted. And we have someone who's like, I think he's tripled or doubled the number of pick and rolls that he's running per game or something just absurd like that. So he's took a rookie to sophomore leap and then made another leap on top of that. Like we don't, you don't normally see two gargantuan leaps consecutively from players who like weren't build as stars to begin with. He was his rookie season. He was this modestly boring unsparingly used specialty shooter. And now he's the Grizzlies second most important half court creator. He's out right now, but like that is just not a transition I ever saw coming. Shout out to Desmond Bay. He's fantastic. Miami Heat, Max Struess taking another leap. I think you have to go with this one just because the Heat have been, I guess, wildly disappointing overall. Half-court offense is kind of a mess. They definitely miss P.J. Tucker. Bam has not taken a step on offense. Lowry's been touch and go. Um, I know they've dealt with some injuries and absences this season. Victor Oladipo hasn't even played yet. I think you can maybe also go as Tyler Hero sort of impressed. Like, maybe his numbers have come down a little bit, but he's been... Everyone thought he was going to transition to more of like sort of this off ball role. He's not as focused on passing this year, but he's really, he's been slinging it for a lot. Maybe that's just not surprising to you after watching him his entire career. Um, But he's been uh, like kind of on fire for most of the season off the dribble. Um, But like the heat, as Bucky wrote, they're like a worse version of last season squad. So they're not really uh, impacting. Uh, They're they're not really shocking or awing anybody. Milwaukee Bucks, Javon Carter, understanding the assignment. Is that a surprise? I guess like the way he's playing is just very Javon Cartery, uh, but this is another team that's sort of hard up for surprises because they are who we expected them to be, um, and that's pretty dominant. Um, even though they've had they've they've lost a few um, games that might make you um, you know get your attention, and Giannis has been struggling from the foul line, sub sixty percent there, been struggling from the outside as well, um, shooting on un- like under thirty percent from mid range, under thirty percent on three, uh, has not looked great. I think what I would also go with is that. There, this is surprising to me that they are such so good at defending both the rim and the three point line right now. Like, we just don't, they have they're the third best rim protecting team in the league, and then they're limiting the amount of shots that their opponents are taking from three this year. Um, they're fourth, so they're when you're looking at volume, let's do it this way they rank in the top five of both a volume allowed both at the rim and from the three point line. That is really, really hard to do. And if I had to guess, they're the only team that's doing it right now. No, Boston. Boston and Milwaukee, um, which is just funny because Boston's defense without Robert Williams III, maybe because they're not forcing as many turnovers, it has pulled back a bit. But um, I think that's my bigger surprise for Milwaukee because I look at Javon Carter, him playing such a big role, I get it. Uh, But we've seen him do this before 
It's just that he didn't do it in Brooklyn. He did it for a time in Phoenix. So I'm going to go with uh, how the Bucks are like all of a sudden just like limiting three-point attempts when they were giving those up readily for so long. Minnesota Timberwolves, Torian Prince's sizzling slash line. I think that's fair. Uh, this is a team that's like probably hasn't too many other surprises if you wanted to go with some of the play of Jalen Noel or even Jordan McLaughlin at points. But like now we're sort of reaching Jalen Noel cooled off after a pretty hot start. So I think this is the answer. And Torian Prince kind of showed signs of life last year. And now you're talking about someone who's um, you know, going for over 42% of his threes when that had sort of like been dragged down a bit in previous levels. And his Buckley notes, he's like kind of slashing 50, 40, 90 at the moment. Not a huge free throw guy in terms of volume, but shooting over 94% there. Um, this is they he's he's really critical to their spacing because that's a team that still needs it and is figuring themselves out on the offensive end. Pelicans, Trey Murphy's emergence for New Orleans. Yeah, I think people sort of saw flashes of this last season, but he's outplayed Herb Jones at this point. I'm not sure that a lot of people expected that to happen. So I would think that's definitely a surprise. And he's shown everything from just motion shooting to being able to defend up and down the positional spectrum to even just sort of having like some quick decision making with the ball on his hands. So I think that's definitely it. There's certainly not a rosier surprise, unless you want to focus on Jose Alvarado. I guess you could go there. Uh, New York Knicks, Tibbs trying to top it right <laughs> He first busted out against the Sixers a while ago when there was no Embiid, no hard, and the Knicks were down. If you want to come back, the numbers on that lineup are not great, um, but he has gone to it a little, or I would say a lot more often because it was relative to never going to it. Uh, that's probably the the biggest surprise that he's gone there. I mean, cause it's certainly not, he hasn't staggered Randall and RJ Barrett enough. I think Jalen Brunson has been fantastic, but did you really expect that? Uh, I, you could go with RJ Barrett's finishing. He's been terrible by it. If you look at his, go back, look at RJ Barrett, his first five games, then his next seven. And then his last five, just such a roller coaster this year. But if you wanted to focus on his finishing, which is now dropped, it was up for a second. So that really can't be it now that I think about it. So what is the what is the pleasant surprise for the Knicks? Emmanuel Quickly's defense, I think. He just looks like he's been like one of their feistiest or the feistiest perimeter defender that they've had this year. So do you go with him? Maybe some Cam's Reddish emergence too. Um, he's played some really hyper-engaged minutes when he's been given the opportunity for them. I think I would lean more sword toe one of those two, just because Tibbs hasn't, I would say, consistently tried the top end Randall lineup. That's so I, w- I would slightly disagree there. I did that. It was good for a laugh. Oklahoma City, Shea Gilders Alexander joined the MVP race. I think you can go with Alexei Pokashevsky being so good this year. Um, but yeah, Shea Gilders Alexander, as we record, this has been a top 10 player. He was fifth on my last MVP ladder. No one predicted that 20% of the way through the season, as high as anyone was on Shea Gilders Alexander. I thought I was pretty high. No one predicted that. That's easy. He's just been mind meltingly brilliant, is the only way to describe it. And the Thunder are winning the minutes he's on the court, by the way. Orlando Magic, Bobo's breakout. Yeah. There's people who are just like, why do we need Victor Wimbanyama when Bobo's already in the league? His his value, when you look at his ball skills, is just sort of a wing type on offense. He's giving you some defensive disruption as well. But it looks really fluid and just like it's coming together this season. Um, and some of the layups he can finish from like, it feels like 18 feet out and he's just able to finger roll it in. Um He's been great. And yeah, I thought, I, I guess I thought his career was over, but they re-signed him. It was to an afterthought deal. And I didn't think there was going to be a pathway to minutes for him. And like injuries have sort of carved out a way. I, I don't think we ever should have banked on Jonathan Isaac being available, like uh, Palavin Carroll missing some time. But him just like immediately usurping Mo Bamba in the rotation. Yeah, easy. And he's been great for Orlando. Philadelphia 76ers, dominant defense. I'm going to say yes, because they fucking sucked in transition to start the year. And their numbers haven't even all the way rebounded. But you look at 
how injured they've been. Joel Embiid missed some time, and he's about to miss more time. Um, and then you were playing with James Harden a bunch. Maxi feels like he has regressed on the defensive end since his rookie season, even since last year. Um, yes, you did have PJ Tucker, you have the Anthony Melton, you have Daniel House, but I think you just look at the names on this roster and it's it's like, okay, well, Harden, Embiid, Maxi, that's going to be an offensive identity. No, I mean, the Sixers have been wildly uninventive on the offensive end, but they're fourth now in, in points allowed per possession on defense. Uh, they're also just like, they're forcing a shit ton of turnovers. And I, I think you look at the personnel, Tucker, Melton, uh, even like Maxi being there, uh, Daniel House, uh, haven't forgotten about him, but many minutes that Paul Reed gets plus Joel Embiid. I guess we should have seen it, but they're in the top seven of both opponent effective field goal percentage and turnovers forced. That's big for them. So I do think that's been a surprise. I don't really know that you could look at a player, singular player though, and, and think otherwise though. Maybe Joel Embiid just putting up like Will Chamberlain, like numbers when he came back from the first injury. Phoenix Suns, Mikael Bridges going berserk. I, yes. So it's a surprise because I kind of thought like, and we had talked about it on the podcast and all of a sudden he starts exploding immediately afterwards, not him settling down, running a ton of pick and rolls, which people wondered if he could do. He is just super aggressive, making decisions so quick on the ball, not just in terms of moving it, but now actually looking to score, firing off threes, getting moving with the ball um, in his hands and actually putting pressure on the defense. Maybe not getting all the way to the basket, but putting the defenses in rotation or forcing them to react. That's a big surprise. I think you get to a point where, oh, year, what is it, five of Mikael Bridges? Um, and it's just like, oh, he's going to be, he might be your like fifth best offensive player. But no, there have been nights now, especially with Chris Paul out, he's propped up the, uh, helped prop up the Suns as their second best offensive player. I will say, I feel like the bigger surprise for me has been just the overall depth. The fact that they've been able to navigate no Jay Crowder, no Chris Paul, Cam Johnson also getting injured. And like Torrey Craig is stepping up. Jock Landale, like, oh no, he didn't play the other night. But he's also just giving you really solid minutes. But we're going to give a look to Bismarck Biombo. Wish Wainwright's coming in. He's really tough to get by on defense. We've gotten some really big minutes from Damian Lee. Oh, we'll throw Josh Okogie in there to, to um, try and juice up our stopping power. Their depth is surprising more than anything. I thought they were a very top-heavy team. And I think the talent discrepancy still implies that. But they're deeper than advertised, it turns out. Portland Trailblazers, the top 10 defense. Yeah, I mean, yeah. All, all things Blazers there on the defense. They played small when they play big with Nurkic at the five, obviously um, they've just been able to make things happen. And they are currently, as we record this, they have fallen outside the top 10. They are top 11, but that's still higher than I would have pegged them for uh, opponent. They are 20th in opponent effective field goal percentage, but they don't force turnovers a ton. They're also not fouling a ton. They do a pretty good job on the, the defensive glass. I think they just have a lot of really high IQ guys. When you look at defensively, Josh Hart, Jeremy Grant, Nurkic knows how to play in the coverage that you throw him in. Uh, I think Anthony Simons and Damian Lillard have both been better this year. Not to say they've been the driving force behind the defense, but I think they have both been better. And Dame has been, uh, I think he's still out. I don't think he returned. He was out for one or two weeks. Uh, I think it it certainly helps, like giving the some of the different looks with having Watford and, and Justice Winslow and Drew Eubanks, like all of those guys have been able to give him good varying minutes in the front court. I'm absolutely floored at the defensive performance. If you told me they were 11th, 16 games into the season, and Gary Payton II still hadn't played, I would have just told you that you were lying to me. I probably would have said some more choice words, like you were a fucking idiot. Sacramento Kings, Kevin Herter can't miss. Yeah, this is just like, he has like an effective field goal percentage of a million on uh, off the dribble looks right now. I think that's a fair surprise. Is it? Could it also be De'Aaron Fox entering all NBA territory? Could it also be just that the Kings are second overall in points scored per possession? Maybe you're not too shocked by that when you look at the talent on this roster, but like second in points 
point score from second, like only behind Boston. Boston being one in itself is kind of uh, disarming. So there, and the Kings have the top effective field goal percentage in the league. They don't turn the ball over either. Uh, getting to the line a bunch. I think the macro of their offense is most surprising. Maybe it shouldn't be because they were built to score with Sabonis and Fox and Monk and Herter. Uh, Barnes coming coming around a little bit now, and then Keegan Murray's been solid for them. So, yeah, I, I, I guess Herter's been the most surprising player, unless you just kind of thought De'Aaron Fox was what he was, and that was a human roller coaster and wasn't going to enter surefire all-star slash potential all-NBA territory. Um, but, yeah, I, I, fave, I fave this one, too, and it's probably pretty accurate. I think either or there. San Antonio Spurs, Trey Jones taking it all in stride. Maybe, maybe. Um, this is just like, he is clearly their best game manager. Someone who doesn't turn the ball over is going to give you a steady number of assists, hit some nice mid range jumpers. I'm going to go with Devin Vassell though. He's not necessarily slowing down and orchestrating the entire offense, but he's been one of the most efficient pick and roll scorers in the entire NBA. That's not, that is like, I'm not lying to you. He was averaging last time I checked, he was like averaging 1.12 points per possession as a pick and roll ball handler, which is ridiculously high. Um, that has surprised me more than Trey Jones, who was sort of that studying presence last year as well. Um, Toronto Raptors, Pascal Siakam chasing second most improved player award. This is spicy, Buck. Is he in the conversation for that? Man, I don't know if he's in the conversation for a second, uh, for say second most improved player award. And the fact that he's injured, like that's not going to help whatever case he's making, whether it's for MVP, just by virtue of volume. But the spiciness here, as the Raptors are just so unbelievably banged up. I mean, you're looking at him. He's like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. This is, but who's again? Who's the bigger surprise? Then I'm trying to figure this out in real time. And Pascal Siakam, 24.8 points, 7.7 assists. Uh, yeah, okay, hitting 51.9 percent of his twos. His three point volume is is about the same. So is his percentage. Yeah, I think I think that's the one. Unless you wanted to go with like. OG Ananobi a little bit, or is it Christian Coloco coming in and blocking everything known to man? Even that's probably not as surprising. I think you could also say if, if the season ended today, would Pascal Siakam be one of the top 10 MVP candidates? And would you have predicted that that might be the, be even bigger surprise here. Um, but that's yeah. Whoa, man, Buck, I didn't see you phrasing it like that. Love it. You touch has everything. Yeah. Look, the first, they're first in the West. They have the fourth best offense in the league. They're fourth in offensive rebounding rate. They turn the ball over a lot. They don't get to the line ever. Their defense is 24th. It doesn't matter. They have a positive point. They have the seventh biggest net rating in the league right now. Larry Markkinen just looks great. Looks like an all-star. Hitting a, a great deal of shots. Throwing some nice passes. Colin Sexton improving his, his shot selection to cut out on some of those. Still has a lot of junky twos, but not taking as many pull-up jumpers. And they've spaced the floor for him to get to the rim more. Jordan Clarkson just deciding to turn into like a, a really good passer. Now, Mike Conley going from, oh, financial albatross when you look at his contract to could the Mavericks trade for him already? Um, just like Malik Beasley, just like never missing from three and taking them in, in droves. Walker Kessler coming in and just like looking not as you know slow as I thought he would on defense, but also grasping NBA defense, I think, better than I thought he was going to. Kelly Olynyk sort of reinventing his stock here. This team has been deep it's been fun. Um, they're first in the West. 18 games in the season. First in the West. How are they not the biggest surprise in the entire league? And then finally, we have the Washington Wizards. Jordan Goodwin seizing his moment. Man, did not see this one coming. Um, 
like, yeah, that's yeah, I, I think that that's paved the way with Corey Crispert's injuries for sure. And then they don't they apparently don't want to play. There's a DeLon Wright injury, and they definitely don't want to play uh Johnny Davis. If you were looking for a spicier surprise here, I think look, Buck kind of hits it on the head in that I don't know that they're necessarily would be one there's not one that stands out it's before his ankle injury the the rocket uh the rockets the wizards kind of decided that hey Rui Hachimura is going to be just like the vessel through which we um funnel all of our second unit offense that probably surprised me a little bit the other thing and i i think i think the numbers may have normalized too much for this to hold but like Kristaps Porzingis in the post was working at one point and it still is yeah i might go with Kristaps's post play shooting 54.5% on post-ups at the 70th, 7th percentile efficiency. Never been his strong suit. So that would be my actual surprise. If you want to go with uh, Jordan Goodwin, that's fine. That's going to do it for this one. Like I said, we're going to have our one question for every Eastern Conference team coming out this week, and there will probably be another episode or two baked in as well. Uh, please remember, if you've made it this far, hit that sub button on YouTube. Uh, subscribe on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Join the Discord. Follow us on the social media channels. Links are on the screen, or panels are on the screen, or in the podcast and YouTube description. Until next time, and as always, I leave the shout-out to the one, the only, the legendary Frank Nila Kina.